Mark Shriver, famously of the Kennedy and Shriver political families, speaks about a strong sense of humility that is embedded in his Catholic upbringing. We've all been given a lot of gifts, and they're different, and we have to respect that. But they're all gifts from God. And you've got to remember, you're not God, and I'm not God. And, you know, uh, sunrise this morning in Bethesda was absolutely beautiful, and there's nothing I did to deserve that. Stay tuned for more from Mark Shriver on his work in early childhood education and development and his philosophy on public service. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. And we're here today with Mark Schreiber, president of Save the Children Action Network, senior vice president of Save the Children's U.S. Programs and Advocacy, and former Maryland delegate from District 15, a Democrat who served between 1995 and 2003. Mark is the author of My Search for the Real Pope Francis and A Good Man, Rediscovering My Father, Sergeant Shriver. Mark is also the founder of the Choice Program to Serve Delinquent and At-Risk Youth in Baltimore City. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Great. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? <laughs> That's a great question. The public interest in a couple of different ways uh, throughout my career from as you mentioned, the Choice Program, which is uh, based in Baltimore City, working with juvenile delinquent kids and kids that have been arrested um, or at risk of being locked up. So working with those kids, trying to change the juvenile justice system uh, Mm -hmm. to rehabilitate kids, to give them a chance to succeed in life is one approach. That's a direct services, the efforts in the state legislature to make systemic changes is a different uh, way to approach uh, the public interest, my work here at Save the Children uh, over the last, whatever, 14 years is a combination of direct services to actually to help kids and families on a day-in and day-out basis, mm-hmm. as well as systemic change through Save the Children Action Network, which is a 501c4 that is trying to be, uh, some people hate the analogy, but it's trying to be the NRA for kids. So what is the entity out there that has the political sway and influence in the system, mm-hmm. laws, uh, allocation of budgets? Uh, that the NRA has in the gun control issue or AARP has for senior citizens. What entity does that for kids? And that's what we're trying to create here at Save the Children Action Network, a a political movement of people that care about poor children and kids across this country and across the world. Um, So it's a long answer to your question. We try to address the public interest in a number of different ways throughout my career through, again, direct services Mm -hmm. or efforts uh, through elected office to create systemic change or through outside entities like a 501c4 to, that will impact public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bunch of different ways that you can do it. You can do it through elected office. You can do it through this podcast, getting the word out there. You can do it through private sector work, 
You can do it through advocacy. You can do it in any number of ways. So APAC, the National Rifle Association, AARP for seniors are all some of the most effective lobbying uh, or advocacy arms in Washington. But, of course, they're They're advocacy, but they also play in the political arena. So there's a big difference, as you know, and your listeners, I'm sure now. I'm sorry I cut you off there. But there's a difference between going up and advocating for a bill on Capitol Hill or in state governments or in cities, right? And you can do that. That's great work. And then the political, you know, spending money in a political campaign, not just making a $1,000 contribution, but actually getting your message out and holding political leaders accountable at the ballot box for how they vote for children or for Israel or for gun control or for senior citizens. That's the arena that Teddy Roosevelt talked about, right? And you've got to get into it and you've got to be engaged not just on the advocacy piece, but the advocacy and the direct election piece is really important. So every member of Congress was at one point a child. Many have children. Yeah. Um, of course, I think it's not all children that you're advocating for, but specifically uh, at-risk children, children of indigent families. Can you speak about why uh, why this isn't just uh, very naturally one of the – or the, why hasn't it been the most powerful? Or how are you trying to get to become uh, – have greater influence in holding right. politicians' feet to the fire? Right. Well, I think the answer to that is pretty simple, is that poor kids, kids don't vote and poor families and poor kids don't make political contributions. Um, so they don't have a seat at the table. So how do you get them to have greater influence? Well, there's a couple of different ways. One is you go out and you register them to vote. You tell them that their voice matters. We do a lot of that grassroots mobilization work, uh, letters to the editor, or attendance at town hall meetings for state reps or members of the city council or federal races. Uh, and we combine that on the, uh, you know, that's a bottom up, but we also combine it with a top-down approach, which is we go out and try to raise money from individuals at you know ten dollars a month, but also from people that can make you know larger contributions, um, and we stay involved in that process on a regular basis. It's it's relentless, tough work. I know a lot of your work focuses on traditionally Republican states, uh, states with less uh, munificent uh, benefits for needy children and families. And of course, individuals in those states, uh, if they vote uh, for any measure at all that increases firearm regulation, they know that they're going to be primaried. The NRA is going to support any sort of opponent opponent who can oust them in the next election because they voted against guns. Are politicians feeling the fire uh, if they ever vote against children. How are you able to really make them scared of opposing you uh, and and bringing what kind of, how are you mobilizing that voter base on election day? What have been the consequences for individuals who've gone up against you? Well, they asked about five questions in a row, which were all really tough and good questions. So the answer is, no, we're not the NRA. We're not AARP. We're not you know, APAC, uh, which is focused obviously on, on the Israel situation. So we don't have the resources. We don't have the grassroots mobilization, and there's no entity that does that. That's what we're trying to become, which is a process. So we're clearly not there. You know, you saw what happened in the tax um, uh, changes that just happened on the federal level. You know, kids were not a priority. Child care was not a priority. Um, you know, big businesses were corporate tax rate was you know lowering the individual tax rate was a big priority kids and and families that are on the edges child care costs which are huge oftentimes in 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 many many states more expensive child care than it is to go to college in state tuition 
So we have not had that sway. We're trying to. Uh, we're raising money. We're doing grassroots mobilization in 50 states. We have 250,000 people on our list. They're not all active and as engaged as I want them to be, uh, but we're trying. And that's what it means to create a movement. And that's why we hope people that listen to this or hear about it get involved because you can make a big difference. You know, one, two, three people make a big difference. You know, there's that old line from Margaret Mee, which I'm going to butcher, but it's, you know, never doubt the power of a few people a few committed people to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever does. So it's not, you don't need a you know, million per, five million person army. You need a bunch of committed people who are fired up and engage their friends. So I'd like to uh, bring this conversation towards how you first became involved in advocating for early childhood education, for indigent families, for children at all. I know uh, this episode is about you and not about your family, but of course, um, uh, your the the creation of the Special Olympics your, with your parents um, with your mother uh, I think perhaps has influenced you. Could you speak about why it is you are at this organization and not advocating for some other issue? Of course, you worked on many issues in the state legislature. So why are you interested in this particular issue in indigent yeah. children? Yeah, well, I uh, I mean to me I, I don't know about the term indigent children. I don't use that term, so I just want to be clear. You know what we do is we're working on behalf of kids to get them down to kindergarten ready to learn, and then they succeed in middle school and pursue whatever their dreams are in high school and beyond. Um, so, so early you know, childhood d- education. Yeah, it's really early childhood education and development. So it's uh, uh, cognitive development, but it's the social and emotional development of kids as well. And it's what I spend a lot of time in the, in the state legislature working on it as well in Maryland. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm heavily influenced by my parents, as most people are. And my dad started the Peace Corps. Mother started Special Olympics. Dad started, you know, the War on Poverty for President Johnson, Head Start, Legal Services, Job Corps, Vista, Foster Grandparents, mm-hmm. Community Health Centers. So these things are, you know, in my mind, these are very entrepreneurial, uh, you know, people. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, uh, having worked in the private sector and in the nonprofit sector and have been in an elected office, I enjoy you know, uh, creativity and social entrepreneurship. What does that mean? It means creating new entities like Save the Children Action Network. It means expanding Save the Children's work across America, providing high-quality, you know, results-driven early childhood programs. And, you know, we can grow, and uh, we have an impact on families and kids. We're changing systems, uh, and that's fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, so I, I've done it. work in, you know, selling long-distance services in a, for a phone company, and I don't find that as challenging for me mm-hmm. as it is, you know, trying to grow programs and hire people and, and create a movement uh, for kids. So I think it's different strokes for different folks. If folks are fired up about phone services or making widgets or, um, you know. You're really uh, selling those other things. Well, whatever <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, we do a lot of work with a company like TJ Maxx, which is our biggest corporate sponsor. And they're, you know, running over a thousand stores. For Save the Children. Yeah, absolutely. And they run, I have a thousand stores, more than a thousand Why stores across the country. How's it in their interest? I think it's, uh, it's cause related with them. So I think their custom, I know their customer base care about children. Mm-hmm. You know, a majority of them are women. So I think the affiliation with Save the Children and TJ Maxx makes people more loyal to TJ Maxx. It helps them in their sales. And they care about their communities. So it's a win-win. And I think that the point of my story was is TJ Maxx, you know, I don't want to go work for them, but they're really important in a community. And those jobs make a big difference. They're making stuff in America. They're selling stuff in America. 
And the private sector is really, really important. Uh, it's you know one of their three legs of a stool that make this country great. There, you got the nonprofit, you have the for profit, and you have the government. And they have to be in balance. So, uh, you know, people want to go work at a TJ Maxx, create jobs, or you know, start their own company, create jobs. That's hugely important, uh, and it makes a big difference for our families to have high-paying jobs, good-paying jobs. And it's important for our kids to have that education. So, Mark, you are running a campaign right now. You're running a national campaign. You're hitting the state legislatures. You're hitting the Congress. You're trying to get funding appropriated for early childhood education and development. Uh, I'd like to bring us to your first campaign for yourself uh, in 1994 when you ran for Maryland State Delegate. Uh, of course, uh, there had been a long line of delegates and, and involvement in Maryland politics in your family dating back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, but the campaign uh, that you ran in 94 was referred to by Senator Larry Levitan as perfect, absolutely perfect. You, not, you had 700 volunteers, which is unheard of. Your competitors would have dozens maybe. You raised $132,000, knocked on 15,000 doors. You had pony rides and soccer clinics and face paintings and even a campaign newsletter. That sort of campaign brought you into the House of Delegates, and of course, now you're using your campaign skills at Save the Children. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, uh, you know, when you go to politicians, and, and you've been one yourself, I guess, how do you apply uh, the same sort of campaign strategy that first got you into elected office to advance the cause of early childhood education? Well, it's great, and thank you for the uh, trip down memory lane. I forgot about the face painting. I mean, those were all you know community days in which you had pony rides and face painting and those things. I mean, look, what we're trying to do at Save the Children Action Network and here at Save the Children is create a movement um, of people that care about kids and will hold elected officials accountable. And it's a grassroots movement, so we do things like community events, tabling at you know state fairs, um, you know, uh, evenings where people watch videos and content that we produce to talk about the importance of maternal and child health internationally, domestic early childhood education, and educate people. So it's it's very similar. You're you're 100 right, Jordan. That we're really creating it. We are running campaigns to get people fired up and engaged and in, in the arena. Um, it, but it's hard sledding because uh, you know again. People, you know, they understand if somebody in their family has cancer or Alzheimer's or, um, you know, Parkinson's, one of those diseases, it's harder to get people fired up about poor children because in many cases we're a, strata, uh, we're a separated country. And if you have resources, you don't know a lot of people that are poor. So making that human connection is hard to do, but it's really important. How did you important. get that human connection? I mean, I tutored, uh, a family of means. I tutored kids in college that were from Hartford, New Haven, public school system. My older brother ran. There was an upward bound program. My brother worked in the New Haven public school system, uh, and I spent summers doing that and uh, came out of college and went to work, you know, for Governor Schaefer, Governor Maryland, and they were he was deinstitutionalizing the juvenile population. I found out that there weren't a lot of community-based programs to work with those kids mm -hmm. and started a program. So kind so, of, entre not kind of, but entrepreneurial, and the program grew, and it's about to celebrate its 30th anniversary. So that choice program is really what led to you getting involved in Maryland politics. And you, how did you eventually make that decision that you wanted to run for elected office? Well, you know, the choice program is in Baltimore City, you know, dealing directly with kids on a day-in and day-out basis. And having done that for four years, went back and got a master's in public administration, and then came back and said, you know, can you continue to serve kids, which is really important? Yeah, it's very important. 
but maybe we can make systemic change and redirect how dollars are allocated uh, and make more of a commitment to juvenile justice issues and reforming juvenile justice issues if you're inside the system as a member of the legislature. So I left the direct service area and went into the elected office area in hopes of trying to make a change. Now, there's something interesting about when you ran for office. You have a middle initial, and you left that initial off of the ballot. I'd like to ask I did? You did. Oh, I thought I put it in there. It's Mark K. Shriver is the way I go. But right. I well, <laughs> well. If you did it, you did the research. The, the, point, the, point, the point is that you didn't. You specifically tried to not run on, the, on, on your family name but as your own man. Can you speak to me about that process? Why is it that you didn't take the, the easier route? I know there are other members of your family who have run on the family name. Why is it that you felt it was important to try to do it independently and not promote the fact uh, that you are from the Shriver and Kennedy families? Well, obviously I use the Shriver name because that's my last name. Uh, and the Shriver's have been in Maryland for, as you said, a couple hundred years. Um, you know, I was from Maryland, born and raised in, you know, Rockville, Montgomery County, that area. Uh, and, you know, I just felt that that was the way to go. You know, run on my own record, it was fine, it was strong. And I thought, you know, it made a strong commitment to the community and I was ready to run on it. So, you know, I, I think you just got to keep your head down and do your work and ultimately that's what people judge you on. I say that to our kids all day long. You know, my wife and I are very strong believers in hard work pays off. You don't win everything. I mean, I lost when I ran for Congress. It's okay. You, you know, you get back up the next day and go to work or go find a new job. So, you know, whether your middle name is Kennedy or Smith or whatever, Roosevelt, you, you know, people judge you on whether you work hard and you're committed. So that's the way I wanted to do it. So on the topic of family and kids, uh, you came from a family very strongly rooted in Catholic social teaching. Uh, And we'll get to your book in a moment. I'd like to ask how you're going to pass along that ethos, how you have been passing along that ethos to Tommy, to the next generation of Shrivers, and not only of your own children, but to all children. How are you passing along that strong tradition of Catholic social teaching I'm perpetuating that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, when you mention Catholic social teaching, you know, it, we were grounded in the concept, uh, you know, from the Bible, uh, New Testament, in which, uh, you know, Jesus says, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless. Jews, same tradition as Tikkun Olam, same with uh, Muslims, Islam. You know, I mean, these are commitments to the social good. Mm-hmm. And we try to, my wife Jeannie and I, you know, try to do that with our children, uh, Tommy, our boy, Molly, our, our oldest daughter, and Emma, our youngest uh, daughter, um, by example. You know, they do community service work. They do volunteer work. Um, you know, they do it over uh, holidays, and we do it on the weekends as well. So I don't think, you know, we don't slug our children about it every day over the head. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, my example, my mom and dad loved going to work. They were joy-filled. They went to work every day, and they worked hard, and they, you know, were helping people. So, so I think that sense of leading by example and not talking a lot about it is a pretty good way to go. So the Catholic faith has had a great influence over your life. You recently wrote a book, My Search for the Real Pope Francis, and how you managed to write a book while running, uh, being the VP at Save the Children and the president of the Action Network is uh, probably uh, something that most people can't fathom. But uh, the Pope Francis clearly has had an influence on your life. I'd like to ask how Pope Francis's uh, ministry to those on the fringes of society has affected your life's work and how your evolving relationship with the Catholic Church has affected your faith in your daily life, your example to your children. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he's uh, ultimately a great teacher. I mean, that's what he is. He taught high school kids, uh, you know, in Argentina. 
in the book Pilgrimage, uh, uh, my search for the real Pope Francis is really a journey to figure out how this guy at 80 years of age is so joy-filled, how he uh, does and challenges us to, as you say, go to the frontiers, to work on the fringes of society. Uh, and he's a great teacher. I mean, he's a challenge whether you're a progressive or a, a conservative, whether you're a Catholic or a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist or agnostic. I mean, this guy you know, is consistent in his approach to, um, you know, reaching out and, and, and serving others. And I think that's, you know, what great leaders do. What, you know, in this case, I think he's really a prophet, and I don't use that term loosely. I think he's challenging us. You know, when he has a birthday party and invites homeless people, he's challenging us. When he comes to America and he meets President Obama and he gets in a fiat and President Obama gets in a, you know, a huge SUV that gets, you know, five miles a gallon. And Pope Francis is in a Fiat and he's almost 80. He's got sciatica and one and a half lungs. He's sending a message, you know. I mean, when he's kneeling down in a, a kitty prison a couple of months bef- after elected Pope and he's washing the feet of juvenile delinquents. And I've been in those types of facilities. I wouldn't get on my knees, you know, when I was 25, much less almost 80. And washing the feet of a Muslim girl and kids who have broken the law, he's sending messages. And I think these guys, you know, him in particular, is challenging us to to do more for our fellow human beings. Mark, I hate to cut us off, but we are approaching the end of this podcast episode. I'd like to ask you a final two-part question, which is to reflect on your Your questions are tough, Jordan, man. You got got two-part questions that are big ones and... Multi-part questions, so go. So, uh, so, so I'd like to ask about your motivations and your legacy. I'd like to ask, we've touched upon this already. You spoke just a moment ago. You alluded to the legacy of Pope Francis. But I'd like to talk about Mark Shriver. So often uh, I've heard on other podcast discussions you've spoken about your father's legacy. You've written a book about it, about your uncle's legacies. Uh, but I really would like to talk to you about Mark Shriver. So why is it that you have... Uh, dedicated yourself to to improving the world by advancing the causes of early childhood education, by running for office, by writing these books, uh, and what do you hope, what would you say to the people uh, of Maryland who you previously represented about what you hope your legacy would be uh, at the end of this long career? Well, the, the bottom line is I hope I'm not getting to the end of my long career. <laughs> it's one part of it, and I don't... Uh, you know, I don't use the term legacy, right? My father never did. My mother never did. I mean, I may have talked about President Kennedy's legacy in some other conversations. But the term legacy to me is uh, I don't use it. I don't think about it. I think you just do your work. and uh, You don't, I don't think of the impact of your work. It sounds like I think, Yeah, I think you think about the work you do every day. I do and how to do it better. And But I think, you know. I don't worry about how, you know, my kids are going to perceive it or, you know, I don't think anybody else is worried about my, quote, legacy. So the point is, I think you make a commitment to the community and you try every day to make it a little bit better, whether you're doing podcasts in your role or whether I'm at Save the Children or whether you're in the state legislature or whether you're running a business. I think, you know, we all have a responsibility to make the community a little bit better, our country, our state, um, our world a little bit better. And... You know, if everybody did that and didn't worry about their legacy, I think we'd be in a lot better situation. I think people, when they start worrying about their legacy, get consumed by their own ego. And, you know, going back to Pope Francis, he talks about humility is a huge piece of what he talks about. You know, we've all been given a lot of gifts, and they're different, and we have to respect that. But I don't think, you know, they're, been, they're gifts. You know, it's nothing I did do, you know, get the... 
situation I'm in in my life. You know, I work hard, but they're all gifts from God. And you got to remember, you're not God, and I'm not God. And, you know, uh, sunrise this morning in Bethesda was absolutely beautiful, and there's nothing I did to deserve that. And, um, you know, I think those got to be a little more we, – we could use a lot more humility. And that has been Mark Schreiber, president of Save the Children Action Network, senior VP at the Save the Children, former Maryland de- delegate and an author – an entrepreneur who speaks about on a daily basis recognizing the beauty of the gifts that are uh, provided to each of us, uh, both the gifts within uh, and, and, and the gifts of just being in this, in this world. He speaks about seeing the gifts uh, in, in children and, and providing them with the tools uh, to actualize their potential and to realize the full potential of their gifts. And he speaks of an overarching message of humility and mercy uh, as personified with the current Pope Francis, but also uh, in his everyday actions, speaking about uh, the basically a message that everyone, uh, if they were to sublimate their ego to, mere, to, to on a daily basis to merely try to make the community a little bit better, uh, in a sense that might be a way to uh, to create big change. And, and as he said earlier, uh, never doubt the power of individual, a few, a group of small committed individuals uh, to make to make a difference in the world, because indeed. That's all that ever has, and and uh, if each one of us were to commit to be part of that small group, perhaps we would be in a better world. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jordan. Really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240 240- Six three zero zero three eight zero, or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast dot com. Thanks for listening.